0: Every day, early career astronomers work hard to craft the career path that's right for them. Today, we sit down with those walking a more winding path and learn how to become an astronomer, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Sound Bites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system.
1: I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year graduate student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the galaxies they come from.
2: And I'm Melena Rice. I'm a fourth-year graduate student at Yale University, where I study the dynamics of planetary systems.
0: You're listening to Episode 35, The Road Less Traveled. We teased this episode a while back, so it's high time for us to bring it to life, and it's pretty (laughs) self-explanatory what we're going to be talking about today. We are excited to bring you interviews with three people, three astronomers, who have ended up in astronomy PhD programs, or very shortly will be, by following atypical routes.
2: You may recognize a couple of our interviewees that have popped up on the show in previous episodes. We'll be hearing from Tim Holt and Ashley Walker who have shared their research in past episodes and we've also had the privilege of adding a third perspective to the mix from Natalia Guerrero.
0: So first up we have an interview with Tim Holt and Tim is a PhD student at the University of Southern Queensland. Back in episode 15, Minor Planets and Major Problems, Tim told us about his work studying Jupiter Trojans which are a type of minor planet that orbit ahead and behind Jupiter in its orbit around the sun. In his work, Tim applies cladistics, and he spoke about this in the episode, which is a tool of classifying living things based on recent common ancestor. And he applies this to studying minor planets. And in this part of the interview, we hear about the background that led him to pursue a PhD and develop this very innovative way of studying minor planets using an idea from biology. I want to ask you about your PhD and higher education journey, since I know it's been a little different than most people. Just a little. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about
3: it. Okay. So my undergraduate degree was actually in zoology and evolutionary biology. So I spent my undergraduate years digging up dinosaurs in Western Queensland.
0: That's so cool. (laughs)
3: <laughs> it's really cool <laughs> um i my first paper is actually on describing a extinct fossil crocodile and that was what my honours thesis was on as well
0: did you discover that crocodile
3: uh, unfortunately not it was sitting in a museum for since the 70s so that that specific okay. crocodile was a jawbone that had been sitting in in a museum for decades that nobody had an interest of looking at so i looked at that and described that fossil and found out that it's a new species of fossil crocodile, Cambara molnarii. That's wild. And so you
0: made a transition to astronomy at some point.
3: It's a bit of a change and it's a bit of a convoluted distance. Basically what happened was I graduated university and couldn't see a career in paleontology. There was not many jobs available. and. I could have pursued that, but may have got to the end of a PhD and not had a career at the end, which is an important consideration that not many people have. Right. So I actually went off and did retail. So I was a computer and mobile phone retail person for uh, several years. And again, didn't want the career in that forever. So I actually became a high school science teacher. Wow. Uh, I did that for about a year and a half. In Australia, basically to teach biology, even though I had a degree in biology, I wasn't allowed to teach senior level biology because I only had one unit of chemistry. Okay. So I found, I've always had an interest in science fiction. I I love science fiction in all its forms, particularly space opera. (laughs) And so it was either one unit of chemistry or two units of physics. And my wife found uh, Swinburne Astronomy Online, which is in, in Australia, a nested unit program where you can study as many units as you like of astronomy. You can do you know one or two units, four units will get you a credit, eight units will get you another undergraduate degree, and twelve units will get you a master's. Okay. So I started that thinking, oh, this you know sure, why not? I'll do that and I'll get two units. And hey, look, I can teach biology. I took two units and it was a lot of fun. Then the next semester coming up after that was a unit on astrobiology. So I thought, Oh, I really want to do that. That looks really fun and really exciting. And, but I had to upgrade to the masters to do that. So I thought, well, you know, I'm having fun doing this, so I may as well keep going down
0: the best reason to continue to get education.
3: Yeah, it's fun. If anybody ever says, oh, I'm not really enjoying my unit, my recommendation is change. Mm. If you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. Absolutely. And so the the rationale was, oh, then I'll be able to teach uh, physics at a higher high school level, like at a year, year 11 and 12 level. But I had too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> so as one of the projects that I was working on was looking at, I think somebody said, oh, this was in the time of the Dawn mission, so one of the projects was describe the differences between Vesta and Ceres. Okay. Yeah, you know, in a paper, and I approached one of my men- my mentor in this, Adrian Brown, who is uh, now working at NASA, and I still have contact with him and um, and engage with a lot of his work, and had a sort of brainwave moment. Well, what about this cladistic stuff, this technique that I'd used in my honours thesis? can this apply to testing whether Vesta and Ceres, you know, Vesta is like the inner planets, Ceres is like the outer satellite, the outer icy satellites. This was before Dawn got to Ceres, by the mm-hmm. way, so we still hadn't got much of information about that. And I thought, well, can cladistics be used in this way? And I approached him and said, do you mind if I try this? Can I do this? And he said, sure, go for it. Wow. So I did that and it kind of worked and kind of didn't and I made some <laughs> mistakes along the way and that's typical. Then that's typical and then there I used a couple of the project-based units to to expand that further to the irregular satellites. So and that was the resulting paper that came out. I had to do some major changes to it. So that ended up being paper one of my PhD. Mm-hmm. Basically once I finished all that I went hang on, I can make a career out of this. And in the meantime, we'd moved to Boulder but through my wife's postdoc. She's also a scientist mm-hmm. uh, here in Boulder. And I was started going to the Swerry Colloquium. So Swerry every week, every Tuesday or most Tuesdays has a colloquium where they get a, a speaker in planetary sciences or other things surrounding planetary sciences, like st- uh, solar science and everything that SWIRY does. the
0: so is Southwest Research Institute. That's correct, yes, Southwest Research Institute.
3: They do quite a lot in planetary science. Yes, a lot of planetary science stuff. So I started going to their colloquia and meeting lots of people there, going to the lunches afterwards, and this was while I was doing my master's. Mm-hmm. So just getting into the community and finding just such a a welcoming community and an interesting community, like every, every, almost every time I went to something, even if I understood a quarter of what was going on, I still found such enthusiastic and enjoyable people. And I wanted to be a part of that community. So I approached University of Southern Queensland, my supervisor, John T. Horner, I emailed him and said, Hey, can we do something with this? Can I make a PhD? out of this so I can become a part of this community with the proviso that I am living in Boulder wow. and doing my PhD through an Australian university. And he said, sure. One time when I was back in Australia, I went up to Toowoomba, which is in uh, regional Australia and hashed it out with him. had video conferences with Dave Nesvorni, who's my local mentor here in, at Sweary. And we came up with this project to look at the dynamics and taxonomy of the Jovian Trojans.
0: It's quite an amazing story of of having the right connections and the right drive to just make things happen as you want them to.
3: Yes. That's that's the thing. It's really sort wonderful. That there's no point sitting on your hands and waiting for things to happen to you and saying I'm too, Oh no, I can't, I can't do a PhD. I'm too old. I'm in my late thirties and just completing my PhD. I've had a gap of about 10 years, which is always interesting (laughs) going to some of the early career things and being older than the mentors.
0: And after many years of gap, you've really had the time to identify what you want and how to go achieve
3: it. Exactly. That's right. And I'm actually a much better student now than I was in my undergraduate years. and more focused and more driven. And it's more fun because mm. I'm choosing to do, I chose to do this. It wasn't down a prescribed path. It's, you know, there was no end point. I just kept having fun. Yeah, that's really wonderful. It's all well and good to focus on the research, but also have an idea of what you're going to do
0: after. And, and for you, what does that look like now?
3: Uh for me that's soft money. Okay. I'm excited about soft money. I like the idea of being able to change my research depending on the focus of the time of the community. So, you know, we found all sorts of very interesting things in the only in the past couple of years, you know, things like ice plumes on Europa is an example. Right. And other th- and being able to shift and adapt my career may seem like a disadvantage of soft money because you don't have oh i need the stability of tenure and i think that that's a very false trap to get into and it's all well and good the the tenure track positions are fantastic go for it but having being able to be dynamic in a soft money situation is very attractive and i'm quite excited about getting involved in that
0: does soft money encompass anything that isn't a tenure teaching position
3: to some extent it's a very broad subject, you know, it ranges everywhere from a one year proposal to go investigate something interesting for, uh, for a third of your time, all the way through to, you know, the discovery level, the flagship level missions. So, you know, to some extent, things like Cassini, New Horizons, uh, Lucy, they're all soft money if you look at it at a broader spectrum and i mean they're they're career making basically if you get a discovery class mission that's your career
0: right yeah that's a big deal it's a lot of money
3: that's a it's a lot of money and it's very difficult i mean the the process of even getting there is starts at the decadal process uh, the decadal surveys so being involved in that is something that i'm already involved like i'm starting to write a white paper for the next decadal which i'm very excited about.
0: And that uh, decadal for planetary science is 2023, right?
3: That's correct. Yes.
0: So you mentioned that for your entire higher education career now, you've been going to school in Australia, but living in the U.S. And so what is this remote working environment like for you?
3: Well, for me, it's, it is a little bit of a change because I have been at Swier and I've had the community there surrounding me uh, throughout my PhD process. But a lot of my other degrees, and for now, I've been working from home. And what I find is that you, to some extent, have to ignore other people's advice. <laughs> Interesting. So I'm giving advice and, and the advice is ignore everybody's advice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that
3: basically you find your way of working you can read 20 different 10 steps on how to work from home and none of them will be relevant to how you work recognize your own methods of working whether that's having a routine of i need to get up at 7am every day and be at my computer at nine and i have a dedicated working computer or whether that's Oh, no, I don't feel like working now. I'm going to go play computer games for three hours. (laughs) Both are perfectly valid. Recognizing that is vitally important to your own mental health, as well as the mental health of any team members that you happen to have. Don't force them to work a certain way.
0: I think that's wonderful advice. I, I hope that people who are now experiencing what working from home is are finding a routine that works for them. But I, I worry that, you know, myself included, is feeling a lot of pressure to conform to what the standards may seem like, even though you're saying those standards um, shouldn't really exist.
3: I agree. Having worked in retail for far too long, the concept of a weekend mentally doesn't exist for me. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so if you need to work on a Sunday afternoon, that's fine. If you want to have take some time out and do a barbecue on a Tuesday morning. Go for it. I really like
0: Tim's ending there on an important reminder about working from home, especially in the age of COVID. Be flexible and take care of yourself. Your health and your mental
1: health are the most important things in life. Easier said than done sometimes, but an important (laughs) lesson nonetheless.
0: And so now we'll transition into our semi-monthly astro-off-roading space sound adventure.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Astro-off-roading.
0: Have you ever done astro-off-roading?
1: We're about to.
2: Is that a thing? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs)
1: It's crazy. That's the sound I hear every time I go ask for off roading. <laughs> Still have no idea what it is.
2: Yeah, it gave me like weird deja vu to like very old movies. I don't know why. Huh. It just sounds like the intro to like a very old movie to me.
1: I feel like I just got abducted.
4: <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe that's the sound. It's alien abduction. <laughs> I truly have no idea. I was trying to think, and my my brain just went blank.
0: I'll give you a hint. There there are two things that I find really cool about this sonification. The first is that instead of scanning in time or across an image, it scans around an image in a circle. Huh. Does that give yeah. you a little bit of insight what it might be?
2: Is it the Milky Way galaxy or something else that would make sense to have variations in a circle? That's my guess. Nope. No. <laughs>
1: is it spherically symmetric?
0: Yeah. Is it a planet? No, it's not a planet. It's a supernova remnant. Supernova
1: remnant. That's a good one. (laughs) It's a
0: supernova 1987A, the famous uh, Mm. supernova that was observed around the world. Hmm. And the way that this sonification was done is it was a scan around the edge of the supernova remnant Mm. as it's projected into 2D. So it looks like a ring. And it also... A scan in time which is a little crazy so as it goes around the remnant it goes from 1999 up through 2012 or 2013 when there was actually during that period a significant change in the brightness of the supernova remnant because the shockwave ran into an expanding gas cloud and ionized it hmm. and then you got an increase in the x-ray emissions and this is from Chandra and Hubble combined The other thing I really liked about the sonification is what sound they used. It's those crystal singing bowls. Have you played with these or seen them before?
1: Yeah, that's what I thought it sounded like.
2: I don't know that I've seen these.
0: (laughs) I've seen them as ceramic, not crystal, Mm. but it's like a small, heavy ceramic bowl. And you take sort of a dowel and you rub it around the inside rim or the outside rim of the bowl. And when you get it just right, It vibrates and it makes this singing noise. And I don't recall where I saw it. It It's in one of these cool shops um, somewhere in New York. But um, it's really hard to get it to sing right. So I guess they, uh, you know, produce this using a digital version of that sound. But it's kind of unusual. We haven't seen a sonification with that noise before. Yeah,
1: it's Tibetan, right? Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, I think Tibetan singing bowls are a thing that I've heard of. But that's super cool. Yeah, I've never heard of sonifying using that audio. Y'all want to hear a cool fact about 1987A? Sure. Actually, Richard McCrae, the person who did a lot of the pioneering work analyzing the supernova when it went off, was friends, I think, with Kanye West's mom. And there's a picture that's floating around the internet of Richard McCrae in, I think, like the Netherlands, meeting with a very young Kanye West. Huh. This photo recently resurfaced. Somebody just had it. And so all the supernova people had a field day that... Kanye West is somehow connected to the Supernova world. <laughs> that is weird. <laughs> well, thanks for bringing that space on to us, Will.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. And this is a good time to remind our audience about the Sonification Contest, which is ongoing and will be open until July 7th. So check out astrosoundbytes.com sonification dash competition dash 2021 for all the rules and how to submit.
1: So, we've just heard from Tim Holt, and next up on our Trailblazer series is Ashley Walker, who is an intern at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and also a soon-to-be PhD student. If you're on Twitter, you've definitely seen Ashley. She's very active, and in episode 16, we spoke with her about her work studying chemistry on Saturn's moon Titan, and the upcoming NASA Dragonfly mission, and everything it hopes to achieve. And today we're going to hear from Ashley about her path into chemistry, eventually to designing her own major, making it through undergrad, and uniting chemistry and astronomy in her pioneering work on Titan. So take a listen. Can you start off by telling everybody how you first got interested in astrochemistry? And you said you've been studying Titan for two years now. What got you started on that path?
4: I came out of high school a really long time ago. I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> 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 and I wanted to be a choreographer I had no intentions coming out of high school of being an astronomer although I wanted to do it when I was younger because I wanted to be a moon and then I asked my parents to buy me a star off the sky they ended up I my uncle ended up buying me a ruby red telescope I think that that kind of settled settled it and then um, I would go to Atwood Planetarium. And they would have a scale in this exhibit hall where you can jump on different planets. I would, I'm not that big, obviously. And so <laughs> I would jump on different ones. And my, my poor little weight didn't go anywhere. But it, I would jump on different ones. And I said, I always want to come back. And I didn't go back until eons later when I was just you know trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And that dance was not for me anymore. I was trying to figure stuff out and I thought about doing forensic chemistry and so um, when I transferred into Chicago State with a scholarship called the Shy High Scholarship Program it was for um, incoming freshmen and transfer students in chemistry and physics. When I was awarded I would at the time I was talking to my academic advisor and so she was telling me and I told her I was like well I thought it was because I saw they had like a NASA space grant thing and I didn't know what the space grant consortium was at the time and I just said oh I think it'll be cool if I interned at NASA I just thought that would be cool I didn't think like that would be like an actual career so from that point she told me to go talk to this one professor and it went from there and and then we didn't even know astrochemistry was like an actual thing until I googled it one night and it popped up and so I was like oh this is a thing and so um I then began doing more astronomy stuff and so from that point I said I don't think I want to work in someone's morgue anymore (laughs) but I do think I want to work in astronomy as an astronomer so and and I kept the trajectory of being a chemist and so people throughout my whole trajectory people were trying to get me to become a physicist and I said no I'm very adamant about when people try to change my mind so it's like it's all if I tell you no it's gonna be a hard no it's like no (laughs) and so they're like okay and so when my senior thesis came up it made sense why I wanted to be an astrochemist. it took you know my departmental some time to come around about it I mean they were supportive But it took them some time to be like, I just don't know why she doesn't switch her nature to physics. I was like, no, it's a reason why.
1: You mentioned so many opportunities, Space Grant Consortium and scholarships that you've won. How did you find out about any of those things?
4: I'm nosy. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm nosy. And so um, I was actually initially trying to transfer out of my two-year institution because it was time. And so, um, again, I'm a dinosaur, and I stayed there longer than needed. And so um, I'm proudly a non-traditional student. And I was like, okay, well, let me look at this school. Let me look at that school. And I stumbled upon it. And I was applying, and I, you know, reached out to my former research advisor in, in the end. And, yeah, it just went from there. And I just kept looking around and kept looking around and I saw the space grant consortium. And so um, once she told me to contact the person that was the school's um, space grant consortium person, I began working with them in terms of research and being their student. And so when I first began doing research, I did radio astronomy and like extragalactic astronomy and stuff like that. It was really, really cool because the benefits of you know doing things with the space current consortium was that was like my first research experience actually and so um like I came in that August I started doing research that May we ended up going out of town like that next month that June and I met so many people when I went to um uh, undergraduate alfalfa team so it was like the alfalfa survey and so they was basically looking at different radio astronomy things. And so they were talking about astrochemistry and everybody look at me because I'd be like, that's me, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really, 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 really fun. And so um, I benefited a lot from these opportunities. So typically uh, most people know me on social media. If there's something that you need or want, I'm pretty sure I'm, I can find somebody that has it or I know where it is.
1: At what point in your career did you get introduced to Titan?
4: That was like a whole different, that's a whole nother story, goodness. Now <laughs> I'm sitting here just telling y'all lectures on my lifetime. So it got um, lots of stories. Exactly. So um, I had an incident, an unfortunate incident where I was mistakenly declared deceased by the U.S. government. This is the, and this is how I got, I stumbled into becoming popular, which I was just like, okay, so my father passed away from cancer, and, um, I didn't know that, like, my credit cards and stuff were getting declined, I didn't know, I didn't, we didn't realize this till, like, December, he died in August, and so I had to put up a GoFundMe page, and, like, my mom was, we were doing so much, like, media stuff, and it, it took a minute for them to reverse it, but it got reversed, and so, um, Someone had reached out to me and was like, hey, if you ever want to come work on my lab, come work on my lab. And I was offered an opportunity. And I was like, OK. So I did some stuff at Harvard doing um, early planet formation. And that's when I really got introduced to astrochemistry. That next summer, I was ready to go do Titan work. And so I went and did the Titan work. And it worked out in my favor, obviously, because I'm at NASA. So now, you know, doing planetary atmosphere. And and that's how I was initially introduced to Titan. I actually it was so funny though, because I took a poll. So me and my friends were in we we're in this group chat and we're all talking and I said, Hey y'all, I need to know what project should I do. And I always tell the story because this story this story to me is hilarious. I have these two friends that did like moons or they know about moons, right? Okay. And one of my friends, I can hear her to this day through the screen. I don't know how I can hear her through the screen, but I can hear her. And she's like, Titan's best. Titan is best. So like not Titan is the best. Titan is best. Like that is just it. Titan is best. And so if you ever see me um, tweet that or say that, that is the PhD student, Eileen Garcia Soto, who is at Dartmouth. Shout out to Eileen like, she yelled that, and I was just like, okay, and everybody was like, yeah, I think you should go with Titan, like, everybody was just saying it, and I was just like, okay, and I went back, I told my advisor, like, yo, um, every, I took a poll, and everybody said Titan, even though I was thinking it, and everybody was like, yeah, Titan, and, you know, it just went from there.
1: Jeez, we have heard some, like, non-traditional paths on this podcast before, (laughs) but I think, this is potentially the most unique, most unusual story we have ever heard.
4: I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> not so many people get claimed deceased, and then like. <laughs> yeah, how did you? How did you even find out that that was the case? Because we, um, I kept trying to like buy things, and they wouldn't let me buy stuff, and like my cards, like it would not work. And I was just like, okay, this is a problem. And then. What initially tipped it off was when um, I got an email from financial aid, and that's when they told me to go to the Social Security office, and that's how we found out.
1: I see. And then you got connected to a professor at Harvard.
4: Well, I was already in contact with, um, contact with Karin Oberg we were already in connection and stuff like that and she was just asking like because I had to explain the situation to her and she was just like let me know what I can do because this is like terrible like you don't you know what I mean I didn't want like that to happen I was just coming you know I was just trying to get in contact with her just you know to do some astro chemistry stuff that summer anyway and then this happens and so she's like don't worry about it you know you know it's going to be fine so obviously it worked out so, yeah, yeah. obviously it worked out. I mean, I was already going to go work with her anyway, so it didn't, you know, we just wanted to make sure that I would be okay by that summer. And so, gotcha,
2: gotcha.
1: And so now you have graduated undergrad. Yes. And you are in a post position, is that right, at NASA?
4: Eh, eh, yeah, somewhat, yeah. I'm an intern, so, um, yeah, I'm interning at NASA. I'm really, really excited because I literally said, oh, as you heard in the beginning of the story, I thought it'd be cool to enter to NASA. (laughs) And who knew, you know, four or five years later, that will actually manifest itself. And so, I mean, I kept, you know, kept going for it and kept going for it. And I just kept like, okay, one of these days I'm gonna get to NASA. And I kept thinking it in my head, like last year. Um, Last year, I spent the entire summer just working on myself, senior thesis stuff, getting myself together for graduation. And so it was just like, okay, one of these days I'm gonna to go to NASA. And so when the opportunity presented itself, you know, it came and um, I'm really grateful for it. You know, my advisors are great. And so I'm really excited about this new project and just trying to understand a little bit more about planetary atmospheres and its chemistry, which, you know, I think is really, really important when we talk about planetary habitability.
1: Your story is amazing for so many reasons. I think it's remarkable that, first of all, astrochemistry is not a field that people are publicizing everywhere. No. Uh, It's just incredible that you found out that it was a thing, that it existed, this kind of synthesis between two different subfields. You decided that you wanted to do it. And then it sounds like when people were even deterring you along the way from continuing in this subfield, you were like, no, this this is the thing. This is gonna be the one.
4: I'm very persistent. I aspire that other students, regardless of who they are, to be more persistent. Throughout my undergrad career, I have been in and out of school, and I often tell students or even just regular folks, don't give up. This may just be a little patch, but you'll be okay. I went through many patches. You know, I worked in retail for seven years. I worked in many, a variety of places. I knew what I wanted to do at the end. And although I didn't do my dream job and become Beyonce's choreographer, (laughs) however, however, I found something that I truly love. And who knows, maybe when I retire, I'll go be a choreographer for little girls at a dance studio. And so that's something that, you know, I just want people to do is go for their passion. Just don't go go for a job because of the money, Go for it because you like it. As you heard in the beginning, it was just like, yeah, I'm just doing it just because. But then I tapped into that five-year-old little girl of me, and it came out.
1: What advice might you have for people who are excited about a particular field? Let's say it's astrochemistry. Let's say they've heard this podcast, and they've heard from you how cool of a field it is, and they know they want to go into it too, but they have no idea where to start or who to talk to or what opportunities are out there. Where, Where should they start looking?
4: I would definitely start with looking at different astronomers and people that work on chemistry of space. I would definitely start there. I would definitely seek out, you know, people that do astrochemistry related things at NASA. And so I'm pretty sure they, I'm I'm banking they have like high school internships if they want to go do that go right ahead. I know that Atler Planetarium had, you know, some little internships as well for, you know, high schoolers and undergrads. If you get your foot in the door with astronomy, you'll be okay, which is what I've always believed. And so I didn't do anything astrochem related. In the beginning, I was working on radio astronomy and we were looking at galaxies, galaxy clusters, so on and so forth. As you can see, the end of my undergraduate career I landed in a a particular place that I enjoy. And so in the middle, I was in an exact astrochemistry group, which gave me the extra push that I needed to go forward. And so for those that want to go into that, that's what you want to do. You want to get as closely as you can, because then you never know who would know that person, right? And say, hey, I got this great student that want to do X, Y, and Z. I try my best to respond to emails. Um, late, as of lately, I'm going, I'm getting really bad at it now. But I'm trying to do my best, and I'm getting better. Sorry for everybody that I've not responded to. I'm coming to you. <laughs> but my emails are always open. If you at me on Twitter, and you'll be like, open your DMs. I will open them for you. I will follow you, and I'll have a conversation with you. Whatever you need. You want to give a big shout out to Linnell Williams and. Mache Aaron, who runs the Women of Color project at Harvard, which I had the opportunity to go to last year and now I'm a part of it this year. You know, there are women like that that also open doors for women of color that want to do STEM sciences for PhDs. So that too is also there because you may not get it in undergrad. I didn't get it, you know, we didn't have an astrochemistry program at my school. You know, the one person that did do um, astronomy left. And so, and it's okay because I made it my business to do astrochemistry. So there's opportunity there. And for those that don't know where to look, where to go, just reach out to folks and just keep reaching out because you never know who's going to help you bump into someone. And that actually just recently happened to a newer, um, one of our newer um, Black women in astrochemistry. I'm so grateful that I met her. So, um, we're really excited about that. You never know where you will end up.
1: I really appreciated Ashley's advice on how important it is to reach out to people doing the same kind of work that you want to do in the future. It always seems terrifying at first, but it's invaluable to have a mentor that can advocate for you and guide you along in your career.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's really great advice. And last up today, we have an interview with Natalia Guerrero. Natalia will tell us about her journey into a tremendously important role in the test team and how it has steered her to soon pursue a PhD in astronomy. My name is Natalia Guerrero. I am the
5: test objects of interest manager and the MIT test communications lead at the MIT test science office in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
2: It sounds like kind of a dual role, where it sounds like there are a lot of different facets to your job. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you do in the day-to-day? Yeah, sure. Uh, my day-to-day working on
5: tests is a mix between working on the test Objects of Interest catalog and the communications between MIT, NASA tests, other people. And so most of my time is spent on watching the test data just move through all of the different stages that it takes to go from these huge wide field images that we're collecting on sort of almost monthly cadence with each sector of observation and shepherding those through into getting a couple dozen actual planet candidates at the end of that process. And so we search for planets using a couple of different software tools like automated classification and then humans actually go and look at the light curves looking for exoplanets and this is for trying to cut down from millions of stars down to hundreds of things that we can feasibly observe and send out to the community and then putting those in a catalog and corresponding with all the various people that are interested in using these objects that's like the major part of my job
0: This may be a dumb question, but what makes an object of interest?
5: (laughs) That's a really good question. I should have defined that. So a test object of interest is something that we think needs. We try to define this as broadly as possible to include anything that we think is worth following up with additional telescope time. So this can mean this looks like a bona fide planet. We should definitely go look at it. Okay. This could be the next habitable super Earth twin. Perfect. Like, let's go look at it. Or this could mean something like, we think this could be a planet, but there's two stars really close to it in like the next pixel over, and we need more follow-up in order to figure out whether or not this is worth continuing to study or not. So we there's this spirit of generosity within the whole process that tries to be as inclusive as possible.
2: Okay, but to clarify, all the candidates are planet candidates. So if you see a supernova candidate or something, you wouldn't flag it?
1: I was about to ask.
2: Right. It's strictly (laughs)
5: planetary or, yes, planetary transit-like.
2: Yeah, so you mentioned that you're working with a lot of different people, uh, working sort of at the intersection of a lot of different teams. Are you actually going through and looking at the light curves yourself, or are you sort of coordinating other people doing that, or how does that work?
5: In early days, it was a lot of me and a small group of people clicking through a lot of light curves. but we've been able to build up a huge team of v- vetters we call them who go through the one or two page reports generated for each promising candidate and they classify these is this a planet candidate do we think this is an eclipsing binary system stellar variability is something that the spacecraft is doing etc and so i guess like i can give like a rough 30 second how we get to that moment <laughs> So yeah, we do, we extract the light curves from both the test full frame images, which are taken every 30 minutes and the test postage stamps, which are like an 11 by 11 pixel aperture around that are taken every two minutes. And we have tools that basically look for transits through those. Um, So the 30 minutes is, is searched with like a BLS algorithm. So searching for transits, we have like several thousand that come out of both of those searches and. Uh, use decision trees and also machine learning to pick out just the really promising transit-like like curves. And then from there, we can review about 200, I would say, every sector to get out the dozen or so
2: TOIs that we want to look at. Mm-hmm. That's super cool. And just to clarify, BLS is box-leaf squares, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's just a, a method to determine whether a signal looks like a box transit or like something else. Yes.
0: This is an automated pipeline, right? It's, it's running this without anyone having to go through and do that on every single light
5: curve. Yes, that's right. Excellent. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Yes. We've also borrowed a lot from Kepler, which is really nice to have mm-hmm. had like an older sibling telescope go through this process before. Right, And the processing for the two minute
2: data is exactly the same, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the systematics are really similar, right? So that's helped a lot in pushing tests further along earlier on in the mission.
5: Yes, we're lucky that we don't have to deal with like the K2. I think they have a lot of spacecraft motion that Mm -hmm. they have to remove. So we fortunately don't have to deal with that. Yeah.
1: What kind of processing rates do you have? So how many light curves do you have to process per second per day per minute
5: <laughs> i know that it takes us um about a week to crunch through all of the full frame images from a given sector and i think it's on the order of like two to three days for all of the two minute data um they use a wow. supercomputer yeah. so they can I'm sure. <laughs> i was gonna
2: say that's really fast zip through right. that <laughs> yeah cool cool so this is a really crucial position that's a the interface of a lot of different research teams but you received your bachelor's degree seven years ago, right? Yes. So what brought you to this role and how would you describe your career path? I
5: really like how I've come to work as the TOI manager for TESS because it's, uh, it's a really unique research path and um, I think it has allowed me to grow in a really, really special way. So I started in physics and in undergrad I was really interested in dark matter and the detection of WIMP dark matter Mm -hmm. and uh, so I was working on research projects having to do with that and so I actually started grad school out of undergrad in a high energy or um, like astroparticle physics group Mm -hmm. and um, we were working on a dark matter detector that was going to it's a really it's a subfield of dark matter detection called directional direct detection of dark matter. That's cool. And so not only are you trying to measure like dark matter particles like running into some molecule, you're also trying to measure how that changes over time, because the earth in its orbit, it's either going into the dark matter wind or out of it. And so you should see a change over the course of the year.
0: It's like the luminiferous ether.
5: Yes, exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> also just thinking of dark matter as a wind is is phenomenal, I love that.
5: Yeah. It's really interesting. But it's a really small subfield and I went to a workshop I think in the end of my first year and there was like 40 people at that workshop and if like our building had been hit by a meteor at that point like the whole field would have been over,
2: just like that would have been it. (laughs) I worry about that sometimes at conferences.
0: You need a designated survivor, right?
2: Yeah, for
5: real. So as I started moving further into this, I realized there's still so much about astrophysics and particle physics that I want to know and that I want to learn about and work in. I don't feel like specializing and becoming this focused is what I want to do right now. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that I was going to leave this program. And fortunately, at the same time, uh, Tess was hiring for camera technicians to test the four flight cameras that were going to be put on the spacecraft. We worked with MIT Lincoln Lab, which built, like, designed and built the cameras. So I was at the stage where once the detectors and the lenses of the cameras had been stuck together... Uh, they sent them to us. We put them in a vacuum chamber and got it to space temperatures really cold. And then we would uh, see how the focus of the camera looked. So how well focused if we shone essentially artificial starlight onto the focal plane array, what that would look like. And it was this really amazing experience of working with engineers, system engineers, people who are into planning, finance, like getting this whole different view of how science gets done from like the very focused particle physics um, sort of like PI heart hierarchy to this totally different, like very mission oriented team based thing Um, and working with NASA, which was incredible. So I started in that. And as we got closer to launch, started to think about like, okay, what do I want to do next? And I realized I wasn't ready to go back to school like I really loved working being able to turn my brain off, I guess, at the end of the day, just Mm -hmm. like go home, not have homework, but also work in this team-based way where you had deadlines, but they weren't arbitrarily imposed, they made sense. It was like, we need to have the cameras tested by this day because they need to go on the spacecraft because we need to launch by this day. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) So like things had to happen. And like the arbitrary assessment of classwork and homework wasn't there. And so it was like just about performance and how much you did. So I just felt like I could really come into my own and like find my identity as not only as a scientist, but as a researcher, as a, a person interested in having new ideas scientifically.
2: Yeah. So when you initially enter that position, were you planning to go back to academia at some point? At that point, I was frankly pretty burned out. Mm-hmm.
5: Um, undergrad was a tough time yeah and (laughs) (laughs) yes Yes. (laughs) I had had a really rocky time towards the end of my undergrad with just like getting through classes and the grad work was difficult because learning to be in a lab and like also just becoming an adult at the same time there's just a lot happening there um Mm -hmm. and like I had a really small team, so I was just like very burned out from like traditional academia. So having this role Mm -hmm. was really refreshing. And I didn't really know if I wanted to go back into science because I felt like I still didn't have ideas yet. There wasn't something that I was like, I must know this. Like I wasn't waking up in the morning like, I must know what is at the heart of a neutron star. (laughs) Like that wasn't happening. (laughs) Um, which I feel is like a critical ingredient for graduate school and um, actually is something that has motivated me to want to go to graduate school.
2: Mm -hmm.
5: Was as I switched over to this role as a TOI manager, I started seeing all of these really interesting exoplanets go past me and all of these interesting like demographic questions come up of like, what kind of exoplanets are there? Why are they here? How do planet systems form? And started thinking, I want to do that. I want to go work on that. And (laughs) this sort of feeling of like FOMO slash (laughs) envy is what motivated me to um, apply to grad school because I was like, I just want to go into my own corner and like think about these ideas because now I have ideas and I'm inspired and creative in this way. Uh, So yeah, that's what's happening.
2: So you mentioned that you were inspired to go back to graduate school. Are you planning to go back this fall?
5: Yes. So I applied last fall and because I was just getting really excited about all of these ideas and I'm going to be starting uh, this coming fall, fall 2021 at the University of Florida. Wow.
0: Congratulations. Congratulations. That's so exciting.
2: Thank (laughs)
5: you. I'm really excited and we can get to this more but part of why I'm excited is one of the things I'm looking to do as a graduate student is not only pursue the PhD in astronomy but also get a Master's of Fine Arts in studio art and make those two things happen simultaneously.
2: We had an amazing time chatting with Natalia, and thank you so much for joining us. And listeners have something to look forward to. In a future episode, we'll be sharing more of Natalia's interview in which she provides a more detailed overview of her scientific work as well as her remarkable artistic projects.
1: Remarkable really is the right word for it.
2: Yeah, they're pretty cool.
0: (laughs) Before we finish up today, I'd like to share a short poem by Rabindranath Tagore, an Indian poet among many other things and esteemed Nobel laureate. I thought that my voyage had come to its end at the last limit of my power, that the path before me was closed, that provisions were exhausted, and the time come to take shelter in silent obscurity. But I find that thy will knows no end in me, and when old words die out on the tongue, new melodies break forth from the heart. And where the old tracks are lost, new country is revealed with its wonders. A huge thanks to Tim, Ashley, and Natalia for taking the time to speak with us and providing such valuable insights into their career paths so far. The more stories you collect of people's paths in life, especially of careers, the more you realize any official path isn't actually all that popular or all that official. As always, thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos.